You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 12, episode 12. At one time, religious identity and the Christian narrative formed the social imaginary of our Western world. To be a part of a local church or to identify with some aspect of the values of traditional faith was an assumed part of American life. But today, autonomy, self-fulfillment, and individual expression seem to have taken the forefront of how a generation defines themselves and lives out the search for meaning and deeper purpose. My guest today is novelist and prolific writer, Tara Isabella Burton. Tara is the author of two current novels, one in the works, and several works of nonfiction including Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, and Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. In our conversation, Tara shares with me about how modern society has not so much abandoned its yearning for transcendence in favor of a secular worldview, but has rather simply remixed the grand narrative to fit the values of expressive individualism. As we begin our concluding episodes on this season's discussion of art and identity, I think you'll find Tara's insights to bring a vital contribution to this conversation. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this is the Makers and Mystics podcast, the podcast for the art-driven seekers of truth and lovers of life. Tara, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. You know, I'm really honored that you gave the time for this interview. I mentioned before we started recording, I came across your book, Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World. And, you know, I read a lot of books on a week-to-week basis, and I get a lot of books sent to me from various publishers, but it's not often that I devour a book as ferociously as I did this one. And honestly, I went through your book in less than two weeks, cover to cover, and it's an amazing book. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's very kind. Absolutely. You know, and I know that not only do you write nonfiction and critique and things like uh, cultural critique and things like this, but you're also a fiction writer. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a novelist. I have two novels out and a third coming out in January. Amazing. And this new one is called Here in Avalon. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, Out on January 2nd. All right. Why don't we just start there and tell us a little bit about this upcoming book that you have coming out. So I think all of my fiction and my nonfiction uh, in various ways are about trying to find transcendence and enchantment in a world world that often seems devoid of it. And so Here in Avalon is sort of the most explicit exploration of that. It's about two adult sisters in contemporary New York City who one by one fall under the spell of a mysterious, potentially dangerous, immersive theater troupe that may or not may not be a cult and may or may not be a portal into something a little bit stranger. Wow. It's about art and life and faith and mystery and enchantment and family and trying to find a place where you belong in a world that seems hostile to certain kinds of magic, uh, but also trying to 
figure out what parts of our, our lives and our relationships are not things we can leave behind or escape. Ah, that's beautiful. That's amazing. I'm curious to know then, do you treat your fiction as a means of expressing truth? Is that a way that you work out some of your own existential you know, crisis absolutely, maybe? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, I think of myself, I mean, there's so many writers I admire. Iris Murdoch uh, comes to mind, uh, perhaps more bombastically, Dostoevsky comes to mind, although that's a sorry, sort of high, high bar to clear. But the writers I admire most are those who do philosophy or theology and write fiction and whose work informs one another. And I, I think of myself as a novelist first, um, more than as a, a any other part of my career. And what interests me about novels is you can sort of live with and explore the, the ambiguities and the uncertainties of existence in a way that I don't think any kind of nonfiction book really should. I think to be, a, you, there's a kind of exploration of, all right, we've come to the limits of, of these ideas or these arguments and we've, we've have one way of living and we have another way of living and there is no sort of programmatic easy answer and fiction for me allows us to explore these questions in all of their tensions as they play out in the lives of, of human beings often ordinary human beings mm -hmm. so I uh for, for me the the fiction comes first and sometimes it feels like the nonfiction is trying to work out in a more programmatic way some kind of structure, but I, what I don't think is that the fiction, I don't think of my fiction as didactic or like, I have my ideas and now I'm trying to uh, yes. propagandize them through, through these, you know, <laughs> compelling stories about nautical cabaret cults. Um, but more than these ideas, I'm kind of trying to wrestle with them in different ways and figure out what sticks. I love it. I always love to ask novelists when I get the opportunity how your characters surprise you through the writing process because you said it's not a didactic intention from you so there's probably a bit of surprise even for yourself as you work out the novel talk to me about how your work surprises you or how even your characters may do things you didn't intend for them to do <laughs> absolutely um i think every novel i've ever written uh, has been a process of discovering characters rather than creating them. That the more I write, I figure some kernel, some truth about about a character that kind of makes me have to rethink everything I'm doing. And and this book, um, both of the 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 two lead characters are these two sisters, and it's sort of there's a slight fairy tale vibe to the book. So it's a sort of classic setup where one of them is a wild bohemian, messy haired disaster who's constantly seeking transcendence and you know running off with strange men she meets on the internet and trying to kind of create this <laughs> life as a as a novelistic story and the other is 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 put together and you know feels very strongly that when you grow up you you put away your your childish dreams and you reconcile yourself to life as it is and both of them in a different way or you can say autobiographical or about different times of my life and yet one of the things that became increasingly clear was that these women annoy the hell out of each other, but also sort of love <laughs> each other, love each other so much that what began as a story about, in my mind, about these two very opposite people became increasingly a story about two people who were really, really similar and were 
kind of trying to define themselves against each other by saying, you know, I'm the, the crazy one and I'm the, the normal one. But that's, they come to realize as, as first the more disastrous one and then the more self-contained one come encounter this mysterious Avalon cabaret. They realize like exa exactly how much this self-definition is relational that, you know, we, we get the, the, the disaster. They, they move closer towards... Uh, towards one another, not just emotionally, but temperamentally, as the book wears on. And that's something that I, I don't think I expected. There were early drafts of this book where the characters were different and they stayed different all the way through. Um, but giving them the space to, to really change created a version of the, the book that I, I certainly hope uh, works a lot better. Well, you mentioned that your fiction often deals with those who are seeking transcendence, you know? And this leads into the bulk of the discussion I wanna have with you today as well, which centers around your previous book, Strange Rites. And this book also deals with our human yearning for transcendence, you know, but you come at it from this angle of where you know, some may say that we have entered a secular society or a disenchanted society, but you kind of push back on that idea a little bit and you talk about how really we've just remixed this yearning for transcendence and that these religious or these spiritual or transcendent yearnings that we have as human beings are just finding expression in alternative ways. I'd love for you to talk to us a bit about that and how this urge for transcendence is working itself out in different ways in our modern time. Absolutely, I think as you said, there is this uh, grand narrative that we are in a quote unquote secular age and, and you know, I'm a great, great fan of Charles Taylor and he's a huge influence on my work. Yes. Um, I think, and I think that actually his, his analysis is more complex than the, what you could reduce reduce it to. But I think that there's a sense that we are buffered, we are distant from the spiritual world. We are, you know, post-Christian or post-religious. About 25% of Americans uh, say they're spiritually unaffiliated, religiously unaffiliated. Uh, it goes up to about 36% when we start talking about younger millennials and members of Generation Z, the Zoomers. But that, I mean, even if we just want to look at the numbers, which is to say nothing of, I think, broader cultural trends that the numbers don't even adequately reflect. 72% of religious nuns uh, say they believe in something. 20% say they believe in, and, and I'm not sure I feel about the wording of the question in the poll, but like the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So you even have people who believe in things, including things that are related to orthodox theological tradition of organized religion, but do not want to be affiliated. Right. And so my, my interest in strange rights was to say, what's actually going on here? And my reading is that we are in a weird, diffuse, spiritual, kind of freewheeling spiritual marketplace. I feel like the closest analog is like the burned over district in 19th century America, where you're spiritualists and your tent revivalists and your new thought uh, gurus were all side by side. So I think that two things are going on here. And one is that we are actually in an era of a giant revival of interest in and hunger for spirituality, a sense that uh, spiritual fulfillment is absent from the mechanics of our daily lives. And that increasingly, both for those who consider themselves traditionally religious, as well as the spiritual but not religious, and the religious nuns and all of these other sort of demographic categories you could, you could narrow down, 
uh, what they have, what, what they all have in common is a sense that one's religious and spiritual life is to be curated and to be brought together from a variety of sources, both traditional and non-traditional. Um, so like a very sort of stereotypical example is like someone who's culturally Jewish, like Jewish-ish, but also like, so goes to like Temple on the High Holidays, but also does yoga and sage cleansing and a little bit of manifesting and, you know, brings in a little here and a little there but ultimately sees themselves as an, like the creator, the curator of a, a religious life that they are putting together. Uh, so I think that's one element of it. But the second element, and I think I, I argue this both in Strange Rights and perhaps uh, even more robustly in my second book, uh, Self Made, is that I think that we can talk about this contemporary religious landscape not just as diffuse, diverse, kaleidoscopic, but also as um, we can identify certain strains uh, of implicit metaphysical thought that underlie a lot of uh, our shared, in America in 2023, cultural assumptions. That if, if we were to talk meaningfully about a civil religion of modernity or a civil religion of the internet, there would be something meaningful going on in that conversation. It would not be exhaustive or complete. But I think that this, this sort of implicit idea of a lot of these remixing traditions is that there's some kind of energy, vibes, divinity that is sort of not necessarily personal, but is sort of energy based out there in the world. And that we are best able to access that energy by looking inwards to specifically our affective selves and sort of looking at our, our desires, our hungers, our, our what fulfills us, that that is the most authoritative route both to accessing and understanding, but also to harnessing that energy. And that's something that I think has really entered the level of language, uh, the cultural norm. You know, we talk about toxic people, toxic energy or good vibes or bad vibes uh, very easily, regardless of, you know, whether we, we think of these things as literal. And I think one of the reasons is that this sort of cultural miasma of a force running through it all, uh, maybe a little Star Wars inspired too. Um, <laughs> definitely uh, new thought inspired. There's something distinctively American and new, new thought tradition-y about it. But that there is a, this is a religious sentiment that I believe ought to be understood and identified and sort of systematically unpacked as such. I think without passing moral judgment on any of the specifics, it's possible to say that what I want most is for there to exist a sort of more systematic theology of this way of thinking that, all right, if this is what, if this is what we all sort of culturally subscribe to, what does this actually mean? And, you know, what is this, what are the effects on ethics, on politics, on theology of relations, on our relationship to the earth, you know, how, how are, do all of these things fit together? Um, my training was as a systematic theologian. Uh, I really love it. I, I find that way of thinking to be incredibly helpful theologically. How do our, how do these, the big picture ideas of what do we think of God and the creation of the universe and good and evil, and how does, how do those fit together in a system. And I think right now, one of the sort of odd elements of this diffuse American religious landscape is that there is a sort of governing vibe, so to speak, but there's less of a sense that this is in fact a cohesive system because what's, you know, what's cohesive about everyone doing their own thing. <laughs> right, right. Well, would you say that this is in part the result of deconstruction, you know, whereas, and in some ways it would seem like, you know, 
maybe historically or traditionally, especially with Christianity and in the West, it's been a very God-centered form of religion, but some of the remixed religion, as you call it, it's more of a self-centered mm-hmm. experience. It's more of a self-based religion. And I, I wonder as well, you know, you talk about in your book, the internet's influence on this and the internet's influence even on how we think about community. Whereas one time, you know, a local religious practice was how so much of our identity was named and so much of how our communal expression was formed. But now through the digital age, Coupled with some of this deconstruction, it seems like we've moved from some of that local community, even God-centered, to a self-centered way of thinking about religion. How would you respond to that? I think you're absolutely right. I think that my main view, if I were to have a a sort of critical view of it, would be I'm, I'm wary of the idea that we are the arbiters of what is good. We are the arbiters of our own selves in, in, you know, not least because I think that one of the very great and wise things that many literary and religious traditions teach us is that we lie to ourselves a lot. Like, we don't know ourselves very well. Like, like <laughs> even if we wanted to grant that our true deep self, our truest, deepest urges do lead us to the good. Like, sure. We're really, really bad at knowing what those are. Like, like, <laughs> um, so... Right. You know, I think I, I don't necessarily, and I think I think that there's a perhaps more explicitly conservative version of my argument that would say, you know, the good old days, people knew what their places were, and they they everyone existed in a sort of hierarchy a certain way, and now everyone's become a narcissist and self-centered. And I I think that's overstating the case uh, for a lot of reasons. And one of them is, and and the conversation about sort of deconstruction ties into this, is that one of the reasons this is happening is profound institutional failure. I mean. If, you know, and I, I specifically uh, ecclesiastical institutions, I'm thinking of the Catholic uh, Church's sex abuse scandal, uh, but I'm also thinking of sort of derelictions on the part of the journalistic establishment, the, you know, the loss of certain kinds of loss of public trust in, in government. Like any institution you can name, if you look at the statistics com- com- comparing the greatest generation and Generation Z uh, levels of public trust, it's like here and here. Uh, you can't see what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm, I'm indicating a very large gap with my hands. And it's precisely that sense that there's no institutional trust that I think leads people towards what I think is a misguided but totally understandable uh, reaction, which is, well, I can't trust the church, I can't trust the priest, I can't trust the government, I can't trust the newspapers. Who can I trust? I can trust myself. At least I know I'm not lying to myself. And again, people lie to themselves all the time. But um, I think that... You know, when I when I think of people will talk about, you know, the the selfie generation or the narcissistic generation and, you know, my second book's about the selfie generation in some ways. And yet the assumption, I think, is that it's just about human desire for liberation against, uh, you know, no one wants to be told what to do and everyone's really selfish. But I think both in terms of the contemporary story, why people are turning away from organized religion now, and the broader historical story, which is the valorization of self-making, is the idea that we should not be wholly defined by existing power structures in the world, not a bad idea, you know? (laughs) Generally pretty good and pro, pro pro-human rights, pro, you know, and I think that what's interesting to me, especially both in Strange Rights and in Self Made, was was the same idea that the self not only can but create its own destiny, that the self is a kind of god or a demigod, um, comes out 
I, and I think it is an overstatement or a, a, a somewhere go, you know, veering off the path, but the path that is being veered off from, there is something real and meaningful and true there, which is, I think, the fact that there is something about our human creative impulses, about certain kinds of freedom that we have, certain kinds of cognitive abilities that we have, in many cases, that allow us to apprehend something and tell the story of our own lives and determine those things about ourselves. And these are all in their proper place. I mean, I'm an Episcopalian, so I'm just moderate on everything. But, you know, <laughs> in a delicate balance with other elements of who we are, everything dis you know, discerning where its proper place should be, these are not uh, bad impulses or wrong impulses. The desire for liberation from societal repression is often a very good desire. The question for me, and where I think it's gone too far to be straightforward about it, is where the idea that part of what makes us beings in, in you know, the image and likeness of God is certain kinds of distinct elements of who we are that are not reducible to facts or circumstances of our birth or a place in certain kinds of social hierarchies. Where that turns into the idea that desire, one's, one's sense of one's own desire, one's sense of one's own, you know, I want this, this makes me feel good, uh, is automatically equated with what is right. And I think that that automatic equation comes its, itself from a place of um, like a certain kind of nihilism, a sense that mm -hmm. there are no, there's nothing transcendent out there that's worth conforming myself to. I am all that there is. I am the only power that there is. And I think that when you sort of boil down a lot of these cultural conversations about either self-creation or about, you know, creating your own religion, what really you get to is a sense of like, well, truth's relative, right? Everything is just, you know, truth is what you make it, which I, as a moral realist, uh, don't think. But I think that it's, it's such a pervasive, a kind of exhausted cultural sense of like, everything's real, nothing's real, reality is perception, and therefore, if it works for you, it's true. And I think that what we have lost is a shared sense that there are things that are real and out there and meaningful. And I, I, I don't know how you recover that as a starting point without ceding to what I think of as the, the worst, uh, most, the worst of a certain kind of hierarchical vision of organized religion, where the, the idea that you ought to subordinate yourself can be wildly misused for, again, temporal ends. used the phrase, the valorization of self-making. Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit more. Talk to me about the valorization of self-making. I'm really interested in this primarily because on this season of the podcast, we're talking about the relationship of art and identity. And this discussion of self-making is really fascinating to me. So the way that I understand self-making in Self-Made, the book, is sort of twofold. We think about the, the, the two paradigmatic figures of the self-making mythos as something, and again, to set the parameters of this conversation, as a particular early modern to modern phenomenon in Europe and America. This is where my, my knowledge and remit is, begins and ends. 
<laughs> is we have the the entrepreneur, the like Horatio Alger came from nothing, bootstrapping, self-made man, usually historically a man. And then we have the kind of wildy and dandy, the the person who lives their life as a work of art, who creates themselves aesthetically. And in self-made, I argue that a these are the two sides of the same coin because they're two sides of this idea which become which sort of we start seeing in the Renaissance, which post Enlightenment becomes much more robust and which I now think is completely normalized, uh, which is that human beings, what it means to be human is to create your own reality. And just as a sense in transcendent reality it wanes, the idea that what that the most human thing you can do is to decide what your life is going to look like, decide how you are going to exist in the social imaginary and create that as a force of will. And there's obviously different strains of this historically. There's, you know, the the sort of Frederick Douglass virtue ethics version of this, where this is part of a, you know, in order to have a polity that can govern itself politically, we must learn to govern ourselves, you know, morally. There's the Gilded Age, New Thought, capitalist version of this, where if you just focus on making enough money and you sort of manifest it, to, uh, to use a, a modern term, you'll just get really rich and everyone who didn't uh, clearly doesn't want it badly enough. But the, the ultimate kind of narrative that ends up becoming the dominant one, as essentially the world shifts that, such that economic self-making and aesthetic self-making are more possible. These figures become more representative of social tensions in, in both uh, Europe and America in different ways. But that fun fundamentally, the, the, the sort of culmination of the idea in the 20th century is that what we want makes us who we are. Wow. That other elements of our selfhood, our communities, our givenness, uh, to use a theological term, are kind of arbitrary and random. They're not real or they're not real in the sense of mattering. Where was what makes us us is is what we want. And that the way to be our most authentic self is to go after what we want most. Uh, and that becomes a sort of way of reconciling attention within the self-made making tradition, which is, is the self-maker, dandy or entrepreneur, uh, a kind of demigod, uh, someone with innate special power who's special and above other people by virtue of having different eras have different versions for this, the sprezzatura or the genius or the ton, uh, bon ton in, in Regency England, they liked using French, uh, or, or it in old Hollywood. And the other element of this tradition, which is anyone who works hard enough can, can be this person. You just have to work hard enough. But then again, if you didn't work hard enough, it means you failed morally because you could have just worked hard. And therefore, if you're poor or sick, it's your own fault. And I think that these two get reconciled in this idea that what makes you ha be the demigod is that you want it badly enough. It's, it's sort of the worst of both worlds. It's this sort of weird valorization of a certain kind of person as special and superior, while also an innately special and superior, while also building in a way to blame people who aren't. So really just like the worst case Frankenstein version of this ideology. <laughs> yes. And I think that now, especially in the post-internet age, as more and more of us uh, live our lives in settings that are not socially, biologically, grounded we are not like meat bodies our social lives are mediated through even conversations like this one through through a landscape that literally moves in accordance with our desire the internet runs on our attention our desire i mean i'm not i mean leaving porn aside it's you know it is a whole system of advertisements and clicks and what we see changes based on what we want I, you know advert we all know about the various advertisers that track our um, actions around the web and so I think that this, what has already been a kind of 
worrying cultural trend in the age of cinema, in the age of television, has just gone into overdrive with the age of the internet. And I don't know how we come back from that. Well, one thing I want to make sure that we give a few minutes to as we're having this discussion about identity and social change and the role of religion in the midst of all this, in your book, Strange Rights, you talk about fandom and you talk about you know how even the word fan, of course, is derived from fanatic. And you say, fandom, both as a practice and as a marker of identity, is at its core a kind of self-making. It's not just about what we like, but who we are. Identifying oneself publicly as a fan of a football team, a pop star, is a public commitment to a tribe and a tribal identity. So I'd love to hear you elaborate on this a bit as we're unpacking art and identity, how fandom plays into this as an identity marker. Absolutely. So um, I, I, I like to joke um, you know, when evangelicals were worried about Harry Potter in the 90s, uh, they, were, they were right to be, just not in the way that they thought, <laughs> uh, which is to say that I think a lot of the, you can trace a lot of the contemporary cultural landscape we have around not just faith, but kind of remixing and our own personal power to shape narratives. Uh, back to internet fan culture and especially Harry Potter fan culture. And I, the reason <laughs> yes. Harry Potter fan culture is it was kind of a timing thing. Harry Potter fandom started as a phenomenon around the time that personal internet access was skyrocketing in America. Um, it has been too long for me to call the statistics to mind, but basically between each Harry Potter book, you know, the rates of at-home internet ownership were absolutely skyrocketing. And what it meant is that people, I mean, fan communities existed before, but they were more niche. They involved more sort of late physical labor. You're putting together a zine, you're going to a Star Trek con. But with Harry Potter, suddenly anyone with an internet connection could not just find a community, but find a community where the kind of governing rules was, you can reimagine this text however you want. You can make these characters fall in love. You can make those characters fall in love. You can make everybody fall in love or just have sex, you know, obviously that was a big part of the, the, the fandom culture. But the idea was that there was this vast kind of magical world that, um, and I think was very compelling for people, was kind of open-ended uh, in a way that lent itself to reimagining. It's a, you know, it's a quite stock story with a lot of world building. And this sort of set the stage for what internet culture would become which is communities linked together by certain kinds of affiliation, but that also where the approach to the affiliation was an ownership over it rather than a subservience to it. You know, we can, we can rewrite the story, we can change the story. And what's interesting to me is that uh, so much of the, the language of fandom uh, and, and the language of certain ways of discursive norms that were once like a thing that teenage girls did on Tumblr, uh, and the writer uh, Catherine D has written a lot about this too, that this has become now really normalized in like, partly because these people have grown up, partly because generations have, have grown up on this way of talking, but suddenly I think a lot of our contemporary cultural discourse can be traced back to norms that were set up when the people who are now kind of in their 40s were teenagers, that this is a very specific cultural thing that happened and that, uh, as it were, went viral in terms of memetically being reproduced across the internet. You know, it's interesting because what you're describing 
in my mind, it really points to a participatory involvement that we haven't had in times past, especially with the arts and perhaps even with religious practice as well. It seems like, you know, at one time, an author would write a book and then a reader would read the book. But now through the participatory nature of the internet, the audience has more of an involvement than any generation before. And in some ways you could say that we've grown accustomed to curating our lives according to our own desires and our own whims, even putting new demands on the artist and the makers than maybe we've seen in times past. And so I've done a lot of study on Marcel Duchamp and some of the, you know, some of these crazy surrealist artists and Dadaists. And one thing that Duchamp always talked about was how the audience completed the work of art. And so in a, in a sense, he was being a bit prophetic, probably more than he recognized. But I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on whether this is a good thing or a bad thing or a mixed bag of how now the audience puts these demands on the makers and how we've become accustomed to curating our lives and even our religious practices around our own desires or whims? So I have a couple answers to that. And the first is that I don't think it is a uniformly bad or new thing for artistic production to be a dialogue. I think it always is. I think even a book a book is for a reader in a certain sense. And I, I don't want to lose sight in what will f my critical comments to follow, that there is always something relational about art. And that is a good thing. I don't think art should be a glacial fortress of a self not in communication with other selves. That said, I think the very specific weird relationship of artistic production, commerce, the idea of content and social media ideology have created a situation where artistic works are products are even, I mean, artistic works are always, they're never not products, but they're the productness, the contentness of an artistic product comes to the forefront so intensely where it almost feels like the content doesn't matter. The, dis the second order discourse around it is what matters. Mm. And like, I feel like the most, maybe this is an easy, an easy example, but like Marvel movies that revolve around fan service where the point of the movie is not sort of to be the movie, it's to inspire the think piece and to sell the merch. And I probably, I think you can trace to like the, the selling of merch as a, as a watershed moment in thinking, like big studios thinking about it, film in this way. Although again, you can say the old Hollywood was not exactly a you know, place of artistic purity either. But I personally trace this back to, um, I don't know if you ever saw a TV show called Gossip Girl. <laughs> Uh, the old Gossip Girl was like, I want to say the 2000, I was in high school, so like 2004 or 5. And they had these very shocking moments. It was a very risque show about teenagers, like rich teenagers having sex. And at a certain point, the way that they started marketing it in the commercials was these sort of OMG moments. You know, we'd see like a clip of, you know, two characters kissing and it would be like WTF, OMG, and the meme would be a kind of reaction like, can you believe what just happened? And I thought it was a really, I, I always go back to that example because I think that there's a sort of shift in what's going on in the show versus what you're, what you're actually selling is after the show airs, everyone could go on to the message board or the fan, you know, it was pre-Twitter, but television without pity or they could go on the, the various forums and they can post their reaction gifs. And they can, and there's a sort of, 
the text is an occasion for a social interaction that is mostly about consuming a certain feeling. And I, I often find that an, an odder expectation is that people are more uncomfortable with certain kinds of unhappy endings or certain kinds of ambiguities because there's a sense where people want what they want, even though I think the best art both gives and denies readers what they think they want. And that, that denial is uh, less possible when fans have certain kind of... But essentially when fans have too much power, it makes it very hard to frustrate the, des the in immediate desire of people for a certain kind of fan service that I think is sort of inimical to good artistic creation. That's beautiful. I love that. The, the best art both gives and denies. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, I only have two questions left that I really want to ask you, and they're tied in together, but they're also distinct. So the first part of the question is, we're in this wild west of the spirit, so to speak. Maybe you could say it that way. And we're also in a bit of a no man's land when it comes to the arts and how they are expressed and even the relationship between art and artist and artist and audience. We can't go back to any good old days, even if we wanted to, <laughs> spiritually speaking. But for those of us who haven't deconstructed out of a more traditional understanding of God and reality, and yet don't easily find home in some of the institutional forms of religion either, what do you see as the way forward for us? That's, that's part one of the question. And then part two of the question is how can we as artists who are motivated by exploring themes of faith, how can we respond to this cultural moment? Those are both great questions. So it, it's hard for me to answer the first one only because uh, I, I had a different personal path. I went from being a kind of Christmas and Eastery, nothingy Christian to being uh, an observant Episcopal, Episcopalian Christian. And I, I'm very lucky in a sense because I did not grow up with any kind of sort of faith-related trauma. I, precisely because I grew up not super religious, I, I don't have certain baggage about mm -hmm. being in a church. Uh, so to the point where I, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that my own perspective would be useful to someone coming from a completely different tradition. But I do think that certain kinds of small uh, small gathering with the texts, uh, with, with the original text, with, whether it's with the Bible, whether it's with early, early Christian prayers, I think what I, I find, and I, I do go to a very sort of Anglo-Catholic church that very much likes its, its older prayers uh, in there. And I think that sometimes uh, what I find moving about approaching gathering in faith in this way is that is there, especially bringing back uh, or, or focusing on things that were done in the early church at a time bef uh, particularly in times before perhaps state power and church power collided in the way that they did for uh, good and quite a lot of ill that one can recover a sense that and again i'm speaking just from the christian context here sure but that there is people trying to know the good uh contending with something miraculous and mysterious gathered together to work out as human beings uh, the incredible difficulty of knowing what to do next, how to understand what had happened and, and what to do next. And so I think that I could imagine that um, I certainly found that to be um, something that brought me back to the church. But I think that those texts are 
available to be read, shared in prayer, maybe outside of traditional church context. Like again, something that I, I love about being a Episcopalian is like you can do morning prayer or evening prayer or Compline anywhere, you know, where two or three are gathered in his name. And I, uh, again, without being prescriptive uh, or knowing anyone's circumstances, can think that that uh, an approach of humility and collectivity that also foregrounds the fact that there is a long, like, this is not just a, a church that is that is horizontal, that is across the globe. It is a church that is across time. Mm-hmm. And that there can be a connection to other people who have said these words, other people who have come and prayed and brought their pain and their uncertainty and their loss to the pra- the prayers that they're saying. And so I'm a, I'm a big believer in uh, established words precisely because they, they allow us to come together in a way that I think sometimes sometimes other other forms of religious expression don't. Also music, music is great. Uh, my, my husband sings at an early uh, sacred, uh, Renaissance sacred music choir and every time I hear it, I think, you know what? We don't have to talk. We can just listen to people who are interpreting the work of people who sought to glorify God in this way that isn't propositional. So, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe I think, it, in fact, I, I, I feel comfortable prescribing this for everyone, that everyone might want to listen to a little bit of William, a little William Bird. Oh, come on. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, Tara, thank you so much for spending this time with me on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I am a tremendous fan of your work. When your new novel comes out, I'll make sure to blast that to our community and get everybody rallying around that. I just want to say I really identify with your perspective, your ideas, and your voice is important for this generation. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. It's very kind. Uh, Wonderful. And I will send you the, the book is available for pre-order. So I will send, you can, you can pre-order uh, if you go to theavaloncabaret.com. It will, it will allow you to pre-order here in Avalon, which is out on January 2nd. Perfect. I'll be sure to link that for everyone in the show notes. And Tara, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music provided by Somewhere at Sea. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to pre-order Tara's new novel, as well as links to join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective and get tickets for The Breath and the Clay 2024, happening March 22nd through 24th in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.